Welcome to the first episode of the DJ podcast. My name is Martin Nordine, and I'm a researcher on the project Transforming 19th Century Historically Informed Practice here at the University of Oxford. This series will explain some of the things that we do on this project, pitched to a non-specialist audience of curious listeners who have some interest in the music of the 19th century. In short, this podcast is made with the kind of audience in mind that you find at a pre-concert talk. If you don't usually listen to HIP performances, you might wonder why HIP is even relevant to you. After all, you may know about the Dutch HIP conductor and recorder player Frans Bruggen, who famously said in 1970 that every note of Beethoven and Mozart played by the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra was a lie. So you might assume that HIP and the mainstream are simply two parallel worlds. But although the period instrument movement, that is a phrase that's often used interchangeably with HIP, started out as a reaction against mainstream orchestras, many listeners now perceive certain similarities between these two former opposites. The reasons behind this are complex, and we will discuss some of them later in this episode, but the consensus is that HIP had a profound influence on the mainstream. A quick example will show how extensive this change in the mainstream has been. In 1971, Karl Richter conducted a performance of Bach's Matthew Passion with the Munich Bach Choir and Orchestra. Here is how it starts. Notice how wonderfully serious, severe and reverential it sounds. Every note seems to be infused with a particular concentration that gives the opening a kind of monumental weight. Now, here is the same piece played by another mainstream orchestra in 2009. The Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, conducted by Ricardo Schaii. you will have immediately noticed that Shai is almost twice as fast as Richter and this interpretation has a completely different effect on the listener. Now, Whether you prefer one over the other is ultimately a personal choice. I personally think that both approaches have their own merits 
but the tempo that Shai takes can to a large degree be credited to the influence of the period performance movement, which particularly from the 80s onwards produced performances that were more fleet in tempo than before, at least some of the time. So even if you don't listen to performances by HIP ensembles and only listen to ensembles like the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, you are still, to some extent, experiencing the influence of HIP. But what is HIP anyway? Of course, there is no official list of characteristics that an ensemble must have in order to qualify as HIP, but as a rule of thumb, the defining feature is usually a hardware component. That is, the use of gut strings on violins, natural horns, that is, horns without valves, and other period-specific instruments. In addition to that, there is often an explicit claim to re-engage the past, and you can usually find these claims in the name of the ensemble. Examples are the Academy of Ancient Music, the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, the Orchestra of the 18th Century, and there are many, many more. Often, if you can't find the explicit claim in the name of the ensemble, they'll probably say it on their website. The term HIP itself is actually relatively new. Up until approximately the 1980s, in many places the label authentic was used instead. And the explicit goal of many claiming authenticity was not merely to engage with historical performance practices, but to actually reconstruct them in their performances. Probably the most famous example of this is found in an often repeated story about a well-known harpsichordist, Wanda Landowska, whose career spanned the first half of the 20th century. And the story goes that in response to someone else's interpretation of Bach, she said, All right, you go on playing Bach your way, and I will play it his way. Although not universal, by any means, this attitude was fairly widespread amongst the authenticity movement, which at this point mainly focused on music from the Baroque and before. Nevertheless, dissenting voices against this point of view were growing in number and in volume, and it wasn't long before the debate reached fever pitch in the 1980s. Several academics heavily criticised the movement for claiming to be something that it really wasn't. What we are doing with early music is genuinely authentic to such a small degree that the word loses most of its intended meaning, was the title of a rather pointed article by Daniel Leach Wilkinson. Richard Toruscan opened an article in 1986 with, and I quote, Do we really want to talk about authenticity anymore? I had hoped a consensus was forming that to use the word in connection with the performance of music is neither description nor critique, but commercial propaganda, the stock in trade of press agents and promoters. End of quote. The A word was mostly abandoned after these and other vigorous and bruising critical encounters. A consensus grew that what this early music movement was doing relied on so much creative guesswork that it could no longer be said to be really a reconstructive movement. Instead, the goal would be to use historical evidence to, as Roger Norrington put it, make old music sound new, touching, innocent and profound. 
Norrington, of course, was one of the more prominent members of the early music movement in the 1980s. His recording of the Beethoven symphonies with the London classical players was one of several in the 1980s by HIP ensembles, and you heard some of it at the very start of this episode. This turned out to be something of a watershed moment. The movement left the nest in which it was born, that consisted mainly of Baroque music, and started to explore the repertoire of the early 19th century. This development was initially grumpily greeted by Taruskin in an article that started with, and I quote, early music has stretched its jaws again, end of quote, but it ultimately considered expanding the limits of the movement to include later repertoire an important step. It is probably worth taking a moment to explain what was so different about Norrington's approach to Beethoven's symphonies. In the CD liner notes, Norrington is refreshingly open about what he thinks 19th century performance practice of this repertoire ought to be, and he mentions four priorities. Speed, note lengths, bowing and phrasing. What sources does Norrington draw on here? Well, in addition to treatises of Beethoven's time, which of course only gets you so far, as they are often quite ambiguous, he was among the first, in the HIP world at least, to take Beethoven's metronome marks seriously. Various objections had been raised against these indications. Beethoven's metronome was supposed to be broken, or his deafness might have gotten the better of him, and several other unverifiable claims. Norrington's answer to these? A resolute, I don't care. According to him, the historical evidence isn't there to fit your practice, and if you are serious about being historically informed, you should change your playing according to the evidence, no matter how counterintuitive it may seem. The result of this inspired literalism was a recording in which particularly the slow sections were played a lot faster than most people were used to at the time. The third movement of the Ninth Symphony, for instance, lasts about 17 minutes in Herbert von Karajan's well-known 1976 Deutsche Grammophon recording with the Berlin Philharmonic. Norrington's 1987 recording of the same movement only takes about 11 minutes. Both recordings are available on YouTube, and you can easily compare them there. If you do, you will probably find that Norrington's recording is on the whole, as you perhaps expect, a lot more fluent, as there are more notes per minute being played, but it never sounds fast, at least not to me. Carion's recording, by contrast, has certain reverential qualities. It has a weightiness to it that is perhaps similar to the approach taken in the previously mentioned recording by Karl Richter of the Matthew Passion. But it would be unfair to characterize Norrington as someone who just uses historical hardware to play the symphonies faster than his predecessors for the simple reason that in many of the fast movements his non-HIP colleagues play at a similar speed, or sometimes even a bit faster. Here, the thing that stands out is Norrington's steadiness of tempo, and this is particularly well demonstrated in his rendition of the opening of the finale of the Ninth Symphony. It starts with a tremendous and terrifying fanfare, the Schreckensfanfare, as Wagner called it, which is followed by a recitative for the cellos and basses. Now here is how Leonard Bernstein handled it in 1978.
And here is the same passage in Norrington's recording. Many critics at the time praised Norrington's recording of that passage in particular, as well as the technical prowess of the string players that allowed him to render this notoriously tricky bit with so much punch. This notwithstanding, there were those who questioned the historical basis of maintaining the same tempo all the way through a movement, and there is documentary evidence that in the early 19th century, tempos were generally expected to be a bit flexible, perhaps not unlike what von Karajan and Bernstein were doing, and that the steadiness on the part of Norrington was a very modern invention indeed. But then again, as I said before, it wasn't Norrington's goal to reproduce a 19th century performance authentically, it was simply to renew modern performance by making different historically informed choices, and that he most certainly did. And the popularity of these performances was greatly helped by a lot of things, and one of them being the invention of the compact disc. Not only were their ensembles making familiar music sound fresh again by engaging with past performance practices, they also did so in a new medium. As a result, many of the recordings were, on a commercial level at least, wildly successful. Soon, the conductors of these HIP ensembles found themselves put in the spotlight, and not only the early music world took notice of this development, and it was not long before many institutions in the wider world of classical music recognized the commercial potential of the HIP approach. As a result, the wall of separation between HIP and the mainstream, to the extent that it had ever existed, came down as fast as the Berlin Wall did, and roughly around the same time. Soon, popular HIP conductors found themselves engaged by top mainstream orchestras. John Elliott Gardiner, for instance, was a guest conductor at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra and the Berlin and Vienna Philharmonic, and several others followed a similar path. But this wasn't a one-sided colonization of mainstream orchestras by HIP. The Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment hired Simon Rattle, who had previously worked with the Berlin Philharmonic and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, as a principal guest conductor, along with the aforementioned Franz Bruggen. But this cross-fertilization was not just happening at the level of the conductors. Particularly for projects that involved later 19th century repertoire, HRP ensembles bolstered the numbers, as well as the overall technical standards, by drawing on non-HIP musicians. And this proved to be a very successful and efficient working model, but at the same time it gave the impression that the radical aims of the earlier movement had been somewhat diluted. Of course, this was in part because of the aforementioned guest conductorships at major mainstream orchestras, but it probably wasn't just that, because around this time, musicologists started to notice an until then largely ignored kind of evidence. Building on Robert Phillips' pioneering work on early recordings that stemmed from the late 19th and early 20th century, many noticed how big the difference between how HIP ensembles played 19th century repertoire and actual 19th century playing really was. In general, 
many also noticed how difficult it was for research findings into historical performance to be implemented in practice. Clive Brown memorably considered this the yawning chasm between contemporary practice and historical evidence. Of course, some would argue that that situation is absolutely fine. After all, the word authenticity was done away with because performances under that banner were only to a very small extent recreation of earlier practices, and no one really wants to go back to those days. But there is a sense in which some of the fairly arbitrary and not necessarily historical decisions made in the 1980s, when HIV became so commercially successful, are still influencing many of the artistic decisions being made today. And this is where this research project comes in. We aim to find new historically evidenced ways of playing 19th century repertoire and see if we can present those findings in such a way that HRP practitioners are able to put them into practice. This includes the study of rehearsal practices, annotated parts and other archival materials. But we will also study aspects of the current HIP world and use empirical methods from music performance research to discover what actually happens when you put 19th century performance styles in practice, both from the perspective of the audience as well as from the perspective of a high quality digital piece of equipment capable of detecting minute differences in timing and pitch between different players. So using these two different strands, the archival strand and the more empirical strand, this project aims to gain a deeper understanding of the various practices that happen under the umbrella term HIP and to explore its potential to break new ground. In this episode, I've given some overview of the development of HIP and the background to this project. In the next episodes, I will be talking to members of the research team about their individual research and the individual research strands. In the meantime, you can see what we are up to by visiting our website. The address is c19hip.web.ox.ac.uk and you can also find us on Facebook.